Welcome to the Empowering Grace Podcast. The following sermon is by Joe McIntyre, Bible teacher, author of nine books, and pastor for more than 35 years. We've picked one of his greatest hits to share with you today. A full transcript of this episode, plus other resources, are available at empoweringgrace.org. May you know the goodness of God in a fresh, new way today. Here's Pastor Joe. All right, Peter learned to set his hope on the grace that was being brought to him in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, on the back side of your notes, I have a, uh, that verse. 1 Peter 1.13, in most of our translations, says, Therefore, having girded up the loins of your mind, being sober, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what, what uh, most commentators do is they acknowledge that the verb is not a future, will be brought to you, but it's a present, is being brought to you. But because they're fixated on the idea that the revelation of Jesus Christ can only mean the second coming, they actually change the tense of the Greek verb to fit their understanding of the word there. Um, I was, I've, I've known for a long time, I've, I've quoted this from uh, Young's literal translation, which, it, which I have here. Wherefore, having girded up the loins of your mind, being sober, hope perfectly upon the grace that's being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. I also have it here from Greek scholar Lenski. Wherefore, having girded up the loins of your mind as being sober, set your hope completely on the grace being brought to you in connection with Jesus Christ's revelation. Now, I have a little comment from Robert Mounts here from his commentary on First and Second Peter. And he says, uh, most commentators understand this as a gracious act of divine favor given when Christ returns. And so they change the verb tense to fit that understanding. Others uh, call the attention to the present participle in the phrase grace that is being brought to you and interpret the exhortation to mean that believers are to trust without reserve in the grace of God that is now being revealed day by day. There exists a progressive revelation of God's grace to all who live in fellowship with him. Well, I think Peter is telling us that he learned that Christ is unveiled to us uh, in a progressive manner and that we should set our focus on looking to God for the revelation of his Son to be increased in us and to us. And uh, it was interesting because... uh, I, uh, I had looked up that verse in a couple of commentaries before, but I felt impressed that there was at least one commentary that would um, recognize the inadequacy of translating this as a future when it's supposed to be a, a present and progressive unveiling of Christ. And I found this uh, in one of, my, one of my commentaries that I found this quote. Um, but here's the thing. Gird up the loins of your mind. That means get focused. 
And uh, be sober, don't be distracted by all the distractions of life. And hope perfectly or set your hope completely on the grace that's being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't think God's ever going to be offended if you say, Father, I want you to reveal your son to me in a greater measure. I want to know him more intimately. I want to know his character more. I want to understand his finished work more. Father's never going to be offended at that because that's what builds his church is men and women who are delivered from the compromise of this present age and they're filled with the knowledge of Christ. And that's what we're really after. All right, so our third point is that the Holy Spirit brings revelation. And um, we as a church, most of you who regularly attend know this, but we have some folks with us that aren't here on Sunday mornings. But we've called our church to pray the two prayers in Ephesians and the prayer in Colossians for our church. And uh, so, so those of you who have been part of that will recognize that this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Wherefore, after we heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So here's Ephesus, this church that's birthed in miracles. You remember that uh, Paul came down to Ephesus in Acts 19, and he found certain disciples there, and he said, uh, uh, Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, what were you baptized uh, into? And they said, well, in John's baptism. So he preached Christ to them. They were baptized in water, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So the church, of course, was birthed in this supernatural manifestation of the Spirit. And then a few verses later, in the 11th verse, it says... And God worked special miracles by the hand of Paul there in Ephesus. And you remember that at Ephesus, there was a uh, group of Jewish uh, exorcists who saw Paul casting out demons by the name of Jesus. And and they tried to cast out uh, Jesus in the name of, of, of the uh, they, need, they tried to cast out the demons in the name of the Jesus that Paul preached. And uh, the demon beat them up and they ran out naked and wounded. Well, it says that great fear fell on the city as a result of that. So this was not done in a corner. This was done publicly. And this is where they took garments from the Apostle Paul and, and miracles were done. And uh, so this was not a church unfamiliar with the supernatural. This was a powerful church. And, and yet Paul says, <clears throat> Paul, as he, as he labors for them in prayer, what he prays for them, he doesn't pray for revival. He, he doesn't pray even for Christian maturity. He prays for a greater revelation of God, his heart toward his people, 
and his work in his son. That they would know the hope to which they're called, uh, the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in them, and the exceeding greatness of his power in them as believers. So he prays for revelation for them. And that's how he believes God is going to be most effective in maturing them is by additional revelation. Now, if I were to ask you, what was the carnal church, what would you say? Not a very difficult question. It's the one where he said, I could not write to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Corinthians. And so in Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. And this is, um, this is really a section of the, of the scriptures worth chewing on because it's so dramatic in what it tells us about God's intention for us. Now, this is, this is the Apostle Paul, a man who, whose revelation, if you think about it, it's Paul's revelation of Jesus. Well, let me just express this. All of the twelve, minus Judas plus Matthias, walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And therefore, there would be a tendency for natural human beings to think, well, these, these men walked with Jesus, and I could never be like them because I never walked with Jesus in the flesh. You see, you can disqualify yourself. In fact, we do it today. Many in the church would say, well, it's so great to walk with Jesus in his earth walk. Wouldn't that be great? But the interesting thing is he said, it's better for you if I go away. Because if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and he'll dwell in you. And you see, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. They had the anointing that would come upon them as they walked with Jesus, but they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They weren't a new creation. And so Jesus said it would be better. Yet we in our unrenewed minds think, wouldn't it be great to have walked then? It would have been much easier to believe, we think. Yet what did Jesus constantly rebuke his disciples for? Unbelief. You see, it wasn't advantageous. But, but people could make that claim, except for the apostles who were what we would call post-resurrection apostles. And that's a, that's a fairly large company of people, just the ones we know about in Scripture. That would be Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, uh, Titus, uh, Apollos. Uh, those are all post-resurrection apostles who never walked with Jesus in his earth walk. And they demonstrated the kingdom with power. And the apostle Paul, I, I, I think an aspect that we can consider in this is God chose Paul precisely because he never walked with Jesus in the earth. So we could look at Paul and say, here's a man who, who knew Jesus 
in a deeper reality than most of the apostles who walked with Christ in the earth and had a greater unfolding and revelation of what Christ did at the cross than the other disciples. And he did it by revelation of the Spirit rather than by sight. Do you know that the disciples, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead and some of the disciples saw him, when they reported it, well, when the women saw him and went and reported it to the, to the disciples, they, thought it, they, they didn't even believe him. They thought it was idle talk. They didn't even believe the report. Now, think about this. When you report that God raised Jesus from the dead, what spirit is activated? Holy Spirit, right? That's the testimony he confirms, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Well, when these women reported that God raised Jesus from the dead to the disciples, wasn't the Holy Spirit in that report? And yet, their hearts are so hardened, and their grief is so heavy, they can't receive the report and realize that this is the truth that was destined to turn the world upside down. Now, I only say that to say we are far more privileged than we sometimes understand. The Holy Spirit lives in us, you see. And one of the things I think happens when we begin to pray these prayers for revelation is that we begin to realize who's living in us. And that he has been given to us, as we'll read here in just a moment, to show us the things freely given to us by God. In verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 2, uh, Paul writes, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, do you remember last week when I distinguished between the, uh, how as a new covenant believer we're partaking of the age to come? Well, note here Paul says that the, the wisdom that God is giving us is not the wisdom of this age. You see, it's the kingdom wisdom. It's the age of the kingdom and the, and the wisdom of that kingdom that we are now receiving in this life. And he says, uh, not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, which are coming to nothing. <clears throat> Something that we probably need to hear preached more is the inevitable doom and destruction of the powers of darkness. Paul saw them as coming to nothing in the process of being overthrown completely. Christ in his resurrection overthrew them, but now the church is to rise up in his authority and overthrow them as well. So he says, uh, which none of the rulers of this age knew, the hidden wisdom, which, oh, excuse me, let me read verse 7 first. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Now that's one of those verses where we should stop and say, Selah. God has ordained wisdom before the ages for us to result in our glory. In other words, our participation in his glory. And uh, which none of the rulers of this age knew... 
For had they known, they never would have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, You know, it's it's an interesting thing to think about how Satan and the kingdom of darkness must have felt as they were being successful to have Christ crucified. And and then, when he's on the cross, I'm sure they didn't understand what was happening. But when the Father forsook him and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, they must have been filled with glee. They must have been so excited. And then when his spirit left his body and they took him to Hades, they must have thought this is the greatest day in the universe for the kingdom of darkness. But three days later, something awfully traumatic happened. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says that we were buried with him in, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there he is, and he says in Psalm 16, you will not leave my soul in Hades. And the glory of the Father invades Hades, destroys the yoke of our sin that Jesus had borne there, drove it into the darkness, and brought him forth and raised him up, and utterly overthrew Satan and all his kingdom forever. And I guess if they had known they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. But it was a mystery hidden in God. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But now notice the next verse. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man, of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now here's the punchline. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Now, I want you to think with me about this. All of us can read our Bibles and know the story and the facts. But only the Holy Spirit can really teach us the realities of these things in such a way that it reshapes our inner consciousness and forms Christ in us. And of course, you ask any believer what the the desire of their heart would be, would be the fullness of Christ to be formed in them. Well, Paul says the spirit of truth is the only one who can do this, and that's his assignment. Now, I'm I'm a Pentecostal charismatic believer. I speak in tongues and I like to speak in tongues. I do it every day. I like to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's primary ministry 
is not to anoint us for service. It's to reveal the Son of God in us and to form him in us so that both in character and in ministry, we're like Jesus. You know, it's a tragic thing when well-known charismatic leaders have moral failures and thousands of people are stumbled by their failures. But it's because, to a certain degree, we're more enamored of the manifestations of the Spirit than we are the character of Christ. And we really need the, a healthy balance in the two. Uh, I have two, I've probably tons of spiritual heroes, but two men that have greatly influenced my life and have shaped to a large degree my understanding of the things of God are E.W. Kenyon and John G. Lake. Well, both of these men were men of the word, but Lake, if you read Lake, he quotes a scripture and tells five stories. If you read Kenyon, he, he quotes five verses and makes one observation. It's, it's heavy words, and, and uh, uh, with Lake, it's heavy anointing in spirit. Both of them loved the word. Both of them had profound healing ministries. But what Smith Wigglesworth prophesied years before the charismatic movement was that there would come a move of the spirit that would be powerful, and then there would come a move of the word that would be powerful. But then there would come a movement that combined word and spirit, and that would usher in the coming of the Lord. Now, I'm, I'm highly par paraphrasing what he said, but that's the essence of it. Well, uh, we want our revelation. See, you can get... See, one of the criticisms that the evangelical church has made of the charismatic church is that if their gifts were true, uh, well, let, let me put it this way. They say that if God were giving the same gifts today, we'd get them because our character is better than the charismatic's character. Now, Wimber pointed out the mistake, being an evangelical himself, he pointed out the mistake of that reasoning. It assumes that gifts are a reward for character instead of a reward for faith. A baby believer who hears about the gifts can believe God and begin to operate in them. It isn't a question of character. And sometimes people can take the gift and build a ministry on that. And because they... Because they experience a certain amount of success based on the gifts, they don't bother to deal with their character or they ignore what the Spirit of God's trying to tell them about character. Because as someone has said, what you build with your gifts, you can destroy with your character. And what we want to do is be Christ-like in character, but also Christ-like in anointing for ministry. We want the balance between the two, spirit and truth. Another popular saying is, if you have all spirit, you, if you have all word, you dry up. If you have all spirit, you blow up. <laughs> so we want both word and spirit working together. We want the revelation of the word, and we want the word made flesh in us. We want the anointing on our lives so the gifts of the spirit flow. 
We want that healthy, godly balance between the two. And uh, some of you may have seen the, uh, uh, the Jesus movie that's, I think it's the Gospel of Matthew, I think is what it's called. And it's, it's one of the most refreshing portraits of Jesus in any of the Jesus movies I've ever seen because he's, he's not weird and strange and odd. He's playful and laughs. And, and, and on the Sermon on the Mount, he's bringing, this, he's bringing this heavy teaching and he's picking somebody's water bottle up and pouring water on some of the kids and they're laughing and it's just a, they're having this fun time. And I'm saying to myself, that's got to be more like Jesus than any other Jesus movie I've ever seen. Not religious and weird, but full of life and truth and moving in the power of God. Uh, I was talking with someone recently who, who was, uh, basically they needed to take some time off and relax. And uh, I was telling them about a message I once heard by a famous preacher who pastored a huge church. And he thought he was having a nervous breakdown. And uh, he couldn't figure out why. He was a very meticulous kind of a man. He, he exercised daily. He watched his diet. He had a men's accountability group. His marriage was healthy. His relationship with his kids was good. His church was doing amazing. And he felt like he was having a nervous breakdown and he couldn't figure out what was wrong. So he went away for a few days, and his elders said, take all these books on the deeper life and read them and pray and seek God. And so he did that for a couple of days, and he, he'd wake up in the morning saying, well, do I feel any better? And he'd say, no, I, I, I don't feel any better. Well, the guy that lent him the cabin to get away was, a, was an unbeliever friend of his from before his conversion. And he showed up, I think, on the third day, and he said, uh, you feeling any better? He said, well, not really. He said, well, come with me. And so they went out and they looked at a truck and they went out and did some business with him and he hung out with him, had lunch with him, brought him back late that evening after doing totally unspiritual stuff all day. And he went to bed just tired. He didn't pray, he just went to bed. Well, the next day he got up and he said, well, do I feel any better? And he said, I do feel a little better. Well, the guy shows up again the second day, and he says, come with me. And he went out, and they looked at a boat, and they looked, and they, they did some, they played some golf, and they did a whole bunch of totally carnal stuff. And he got back that night, went to bed, woke up the next morning, said, you know, I feel a lot better. And the, the message uh, was called Gifts, Gauges, and Games. And he said, Part of the reason that he was about to have a nervous breakdown was he was working in an area in that church outside of his giftedness. That was wearing him out. And then he didn't realize that he had a gauge called his emotional gauge. And he said, when people draw on us in ministry or in relationships, they can draw on us so much that they, they wear down our emotional gauge and it isn't replenished by spiritual activities. And he said he had to learn that to replenish his emotional gauge, he had to play games. He had to do stuff that wasn't spiritual, that he enjoyed, and that would bring healing to that part of his being. 
So now every year he takes a couple of weeks and found out he liked to go sailing, and he would go sailing a couple of weeks a year. Wasn't doing anything spiritual. Probably didn't even read his Bible. Can you believe that? What a pagan. No, but he got away, and he realized, so he, got, he, got a, a, he found out he wasn't just a spirit. Now, I teach and believe we're primarily a spiritual being, but we're, we're, we're a spiritual being that's eternally destined to live in a body. And the body part of us is still important in this life. And you've got to take care of it, and, you, and it needs to play to be happy. <laughs> and so does your soul life. Anyway, I don't know how I got on that. That's, uh, it's, part of, it's part of the revelation that we need for healthy Christianity. Amen? All right, we'll end her there. Thank you for listening to the Empowering Grace podcast featuring pastor and author Joe McIntyre. Visit our show notes page on empoweringgrace.org for a full transcript of this episode and more from Joe on this topic. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving a rating or review. Thank you.